Good morning, church. It is uh, very good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to a few places in preparation. First of those being 1 Peter. After you find that, 1 Thessalonians as you continue to walk back to the left. And then finally, Romans 13. Please don't worry about not having children, church. Your kids never bother me. They're absolutely fine. And while you're finding 1 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, Romans, let me fill you in on Jared. Cody and I had the opportunity to go visit with him yesterday. Uh, we were just absolutely amazed when we walked in the, the ICU. He was just sitting up in bed, had just eaten a full plate. He wasn't even supposed to be able to do that. He's supposed to be on a liquid diet. And he just immediately, well, he was texting when we walked in and then immediately just started up conversation. Uh, he said he'd been on the table for the second surgery 12 hours and he had two specialists working on him the whole time. Um, but the surgery was successful. They were able to remove the tumor. It was about the size of a golf ball that was sitting on his brain. Uh, said they had to leave a little bit of it, and it won't give him problems until he was 90, so he was, he was perfectly okay with that. Uh, but he texted me this morning and said as soon as he gets back, he, he wanted to, to thank the church. Uh, so his heart is full. He said God has answered our prayers, and, and he's very thankful. I think he goes home Tuesday. Uh, there'll be physical therapy. He's going to have to learn how to walk again because they did this ear um, is of no use anymore whatsoever. Uh, so he'll have to find his balance and probably learn how to ride and, and those sort of things. His speech was really good. His memory was as good as mine. Uh, not perfect yet, but certainly uh, understood some of his struggles, finding names and those sort of things. But we just praise the Lord uh, for being so faithful to him because that was a very serious issue and and so thankful that the Lord has delivered uh, one of our brothers in health. And so we praise him for that. Uh, we're back in Romans this morning. And uh, a few of you are probably surprised at that. Uh, I felt like the Lord wanted us to stay here. I had had plans all the way up through at least Thursday uh, that I was going with more Advent sermons to kind of help us to reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... As I really began to pour into my study, I, I just remembered um, a few things actually came to mind. The first of those things was Travis, uh, one of our elders, praying last week. There's rare moments in my life that I can look back uh, through the entire time of being in church, and I remember one of the leaders being so broken that he couldn't pray. And so that was very near and dear to my heart. Um, just watching him be sensitive to the Spirit of God last week and, and experiencing that. And then, lo and behold, two different families in the church called me this week and began to share with me that after my testimony Sunday that they had experienced the exact same thing. I mean, one of them almost to a T. Uh, and so I thought it would be foolish to abandon what clearly is the work of the Spirit of the Lord among us and that we'll just sit here for a while uh, perhaps the Sunday of Christmas, I will go and, and talk a little bit about the return of Christ and the advent of Christ, those sort of things. But uh, for this week, certainly, we're going to be back in Romans and 
just continue to trust the Spirit of the Lord to do in our hearts what certainly needs to be done. Now, if you'll notice in verse 11, the first subject that gets brought up in these verses is the issue of time. Paul writes, do this knowing the time. And you've probably already noticed that being a Christian means that you go according to an entirely different timeline. The world's timeline seems to be eternal. I just heard a guy this week talking about or trying to explain something that he could not explain and he wanted us to somehow grasp. So he said more than likely this took place between 100 and 150 million years ago. That was his explanation. That's, that's always the explanation. Uh, just to add time, and, and I, if you'll think about it, that's not even really that tight of a frame. His window of error is approximately 50 million years old, and he said that without being, being embarrassed at all. That would be horrifying to me if that was me trying to explain something, putting it in those broad of perspective. It's, it's foolish at best. As Christians, we understand the time, at least we're supposed to understand the time, and we understand that we've already passed through two periods of time that have been very clearly written down for us. The first period of time that we, has been written down is the time before Christ. And then the second time that we've already passed through is the time of Christ. And so we know how Scripture is divided out before us. We understand the times that we've already passed through, and we equally understand the time that we find ourselves in the midst of, and that is the end times in which we anxiously await the return of Christ. So our entire timeline is all about Christ. But we also know about the time before time. In fact, that was a timeless time, if you will. That was eternity past. And we also know about the time after time, when time is no more, and that's eternity future, if you will, or for all eternity. And so we're supposed to be of those sort of people that understand the time, so to speak. And so kind of Paul kind of makes that assumption for us in verse 11 where he says, do this knowing the time. Now, I want to take you on a trek. Uh, I don't usually do this, but when I sat down with the Lord this morning and began to reflect on the sermon, it was not really what I had written down at all. He took me on a very long journey. And I could simply sum up that journey in one verse and we could be done in 20 or 30 minutes. Many do. But you know I'm not going to do that. I want to walk you through what the Lord carried me through this morning. So I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 49. And I want to show you that no matter if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there has always been those faithful followers who understood the times in which they lived and they demonstrated that by living in hope and expectancy of the promises of God, namely in salvation. So I could have gone through an unbelievable number of people, especially in the Old Testament, but I promise I did whittle my thoughts down just a little bit. And I wanted to start with the first one, that one being of Jacob. Now let me give you just a little bit of backstory. if you're not quite as familiar with the Old Testament. Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. One of them the Bible describes as the one whom God loved, and the reason it describes him that way is because God chose one of those boys through whom to fulfill his promise and bring us the Messiah. And so he's referred to as the one whom God loved, and that is Jacob. 
Jacob had a rather messed up family life, and he wound up with 12 sons. Now, by the time you get to where we're in Genesis 49, they have gone to the land of Egypt where God had spared them from a tremendous famine. Jacob is about to pass, and so he calls all 12 of his, 12 of his sons in before him to prophesy before them about their future. Now, I have no interest in, in spending all of our time, but I will point out that the three oldest boys, he immediately starts with the first one. In verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, if you'll notice that. And the prophecy concerning Reuben is terrible. Uh, Reuben had not been a faithful son by any stretch of the imagination. And so the prophecy concerning him that Jacob pronounced on him was not good. Your future is not going to be good. The next two boys follow, Simeon and Levi in verse 5. Those two boys were boys of violence. And so Jacob, in his dying breath, pronounces a prophecy over him that's not going to be good. He then comes to Judah, which you know, you should know, that that one obviously is going to be good. But I want you to notice verse 18. That's just one verse that I really wanted to take you to this morning, so you'll see this. Right Almost in the middle, I think he's worked through seven boys and he has five to go before he pauses in verse 18. And he makes this statement, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Jacob understood, <coughs> excuse me, understood the times in which he lived. And as he walked through the prophecies of his son, I'm sure by this point he has reached the reality, man, we're not in good times. Not only are we not in good times, but as I prophesy, filled with the Spirit about my sons and their future, these are not good times that I'm speaking of even now. And so like any parent, I'm sure he was overwhelmed at this point with emotion, even with sadness. And so he turned his eyes for a moment upon the Lord to remember the promises of God and remind himself, it is for you that I wait salvation is from the Lord. In other words, I think Jacob thought, Lord, this is a mess, but you're going to fix this. You're going to bring salvation to my people, and in that I wait. Now, if you'll notice what happens shortly after verse 33, the very last, last verse of that chapter, it said, When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the, into the bed, and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Last words. And so this is what the conclusion we can draw. This man lived with a perspective of the time in which he lived. And that perspective caused him to live in hope and look for the salvation of the Lord. Second guy I want to bring you to is walk with me to Psalms. Psalm chapter or Psalm 25. And I want us to reflect just a moment on David. Of course, you know that David knew exactly what time it was. David received some wonderful promises from the Lord. Some, I'm sure, confused him a bit, but that did not keep him from holding on to those promises. He often communicated to the idea that he waited upon the Lord for salvation or he waited upon the Lord for deliverance. His life was really modeled as someone who kept waiting upon the Lord. But in Psalm 25, he communicates it really like no other way. If you'll notice in verse 4, 
David writes these words, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. And so David lived his life, which is kind of amazing if you'll think about it from the perspective that he was a king and didn't have to wait upon anything. If you think from the perspective that the temple was about to be built, he had brought the people together as one nation under God. He conquered all of his enemies. And for him to communicate this idea that he continues to wait upon the salvation of the Lord teaches us that he understood very clearly about the time in which he lived and what he was supposed to do to be faithful in that time. Let me give you another one. Of course, I could list every single prophet of the Old Testament, but I want you to go to the right to Isaiah chapter 40. And to give you some idea, before I read just a couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 40, I want you to notice 39.6 so you can understand the context of 40. Hezekiah has just rebelled against the Lord God, and he was a very faithful king. But yet there was a moment in his life where the Lord tested him and he fell flat on his face. And so in verse 6, Isaiah says this to Hezekiah. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. So Isaiah paints a horrifying picture of Judah's future, of Jerusalem's future, when everything will be carried off, everything will be laid to waste. That's supposed to ring in your minds and then you come to chapter 40, verse 1, and you'll notice the first couple of words. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. And then he goes to words that help us reflect about John the Baptist as he comes. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah understood the times. He understood the times that he was in, that God was about to pass judgment on his people and it was going to be an unthinkable tragedy. But he also knew about the promises of God and he looked toward God with hope and expectation that God was going to save or deliver his people. One more, and I bring you to this one just because this is where we are on Wednesday night. Walk through the book of Jeremiah, it's the next book, and, and go to his second letter, the book of Lamentations, all the way to Lamentations chapter 3. I'll give you a minute to get there. I think if you're here on Wednesday night, you kind of know the background. Jeremiah is going to be the one that is prophesying during the days where Babylon comes in, burns Jerusalem down. He sees all of that waste. He gets carried off into captivity with the rest of the people of God. So Jeremiah understands very clearly the times that he lives in. In fact, if you'll notice, if you have subtitles over chapter 3, 
Jeremiah shares in Israel's afflictions. And so having done nothing wrong, having been faithful to the Lord his entire life, having been a prophet of God from a very young age, he finds himself at this point in his life being carried off as a slave into captivity. And yet he understands the times that one day will come. And so even in this book of sorrow, if you'll notice verse 20 of chapter 3, notice what he says about the Lord here. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. I don't, I don't think I can take you to a more difficult place in the Scriptures. I don't think I can take you to a worse moment in the Scriptures. Yet we find amidst all those people who have been rebellious and carried off in captivity, a faithful man sitting in captivity, praising God, understanding His times, but knowing the times that will one day come soon. And so he says, you know what? I have nothing at this point in my life, but that's okay. My portion is the Lord's. My hope is squarely in God. Now let's run to the New Testament. And run with me to the Gospel of Luke. I don't, couldn't figure out why Luke is the guy that gives us more pictures of faithful followers of Jesus understanding the times in which they live. But Luke, Luke surpasses all the rest of the gospel writers. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. And I'll begin in verse 5. Because we find a very faithful couple here in the midst of a very rebellious nation who were still found faithful living in the times in which they lived. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Now notice verse 6, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now you need to understand, as far as the New Testament goes before Christ, there's not many that you can find like that. But here's a young married couple who understood the times, understood the difficulty of their times, and continued walking faithfully before the Lord. You would get the picture their whole lives. And if you'll turn with me to verse 67 and listen to Zechariah's prophecy as he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he understood that times just changed before his very eyes. So he's in a time, but the Lord changes that time right before his eyes, and he still understands by the help of the Spirit. Notice verse 67, And his father, speaking of John, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from an old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah began a prophecy that communicated this. We just changed time and we have seen with our own eyes or we've heard the news in his in his particular time and place that God has come to save his people. And the reason he could put it in that perspective is because the angel had already visited with Mary and she already knew that the child in her womb was the Son of God. And so even before he was born, Zechariah said, God has fulfilled his promise. He has redeemed us. He has delivered us. You see, there were faithful people who very clearly understood the times in which they lived. Go over to chapter 2 of Luke. This to me is the most profound and interesting one. I want to begin reading in verse 25 and read down through a few verses. And then I'll tell you why this is so interesting to me. Verse 25, if you'll notice, Jesus at the subtitle over 21, Jesus has been presented at the temple. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout looking for, notice, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took Jesus into his arms And he blessed God and said, notice his words, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This guy understood it really like nobody else. In fact, the way Luke describes him as looking for the consolation of Israel, that's a repetition of what I just read in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O my people, comfort. And so you have a man standing in the temple waiting on the comfort from the Lord. And somehow, we don't know at what age, the Spirit of God had revealed to him, before you pass away, you're going to see my comfort. You're going to lay hands on the physical Christ. And he understood the time so well that when he lifted up the Lord Jesus in the air and praised God, he said, it's time for my departure. Your promise has been fulfilled in my life. I have seen it and I understand the times that we're in. Blessed be God. For you have fulfilled your promise and you have sent your deliverer. Y'all, that's faithfulness. That's understanding who you are in the context of where you are. And you're found faithful in humble obedience to the Lord. Now that's not the only one in the temple. If you look down in in verse 36, there was a lady just as faithful. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after marriage. Now she was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up 
and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of God to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So it wasn't just Simeon. It wasn't just Zechariah and Elizabeth. It wasn't just Anna. This gives us a little bit of a window to understand that where were a faithful few who had their eyes up looking for the redemption of Israel. And when Anna laid her eyes on it, she finally left the temple. Because she had reason to go share the good news that God had sent the Christ. Our Redeemer had come and her job was now. She understood the time. It's time for the fasting prayers to be over and it's time to proclaim what God has done. I understand who I am and I understand where I live and I know what I'm supposed to do. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. To know what the Lord's doing and to respond accordingly. How dare we be the people who know what the Lord is doing and sit and not respond? How dare we be the people to not be found faithful when we will argue to the point that we understand very clearly very clearly what the Lord is going to do. How about we just be faithful with what we know? How about we just be faithful with what we do understand and open our mouths and proclaim the good news of God and live expectantly and hopefully looking for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ? You would think that the religious leaders in the day would have a firm grasp on what time it was. They, after all, were the ones who were absolutely convinced that their doctrines and their theologies and their systematizing of all that they, the law and everything else, that they would understand what time it was. In other words, we have to be very careful. Those most committed to the Word of God, we would expect that they would know it precisely what time it was, but they were the ones who had not a clue as to what time it was. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, jot down Luke 12 and go back and read this later. But this is what the Lord said. He said, saying to about the religious leaders, when you see a cloud rising in the west... Immediately you say a shower is coming, it's going to rain, and so it does. And when you see the south wind blowing, you will say, oh, it's going to be hot. And it turns out exactly that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? In other words, all you men who argue all your theologies and so arrogantly think and convince that you've got everything in its proper place, in its proper box. God says, you don't even know what time it is. You're absolutely clueless as to what I'm doing and what's going on before your very eyes. Now that is not to suggest in any way, shape or form that these faithful followers of Christ did understand everything about the times. If you'll turn with me just a couple of pages over to Acts chapter 1, I'll show you, for instance, with that, and then we'll be back to Romans 13. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Notice verse 6. 
So when they had come together, they, the followers of Christ, were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So even those who were found faithful in the day that the Lord ascended to His throne, they were still confused about the times. And I love what the Lord does in that moment. Don't forget where you're at now. You're getting so fixated on a future time when the Lord restores the nation of Israel that you're losing sight of the time in which you live. And the time in which you live is to open your mouth and go and proclaim my name to the nations. And that you will do having been filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately in the next chapter, that's exactly what takes place. And they became faithful in their time because they understood what time it was. Now go back with me to Romans 13 because I think that faithfully explains what Paul is assuming about the church. Romans 13 verse 11. Paul writes again, Do this knowing the time. Now, if you've logged much time in Scripture, you know what? time the Apostle Paul is referring to when he talks about this, and that is the personal, visible, imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the month, right, that we celebrate the first Advent. But as we celebrate the first Advent, where should our minds be? On the second. Because we are still in the times where we're really waiting, we'll find out where Paul tells us in just a second, we're awaiting our salvation. We're awaiting our deliverance. We still live in those times awaiting the personal, visible, imminent return of Christ. And so this Christmas, we understand where we've been. We understand what God has done. But we also need to understand the times in which we live now. In fact, we just did something and we've done something every week for the past several weeks. And we'll continue all the way up to Christmas Eve night of coming to the Lord's table. Do you remember what we say when we come before the table? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. Every time we come to the table, we're remembering the time that we live. And we're remembering the responsibility of that time that we are to proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf and that there is forgiveness through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And when we do that, we're being faithful in the times in which we live, looking for 
that future time in which the Lord will come again. That's what faithful people do, right? But my concern is, and I think I share this with everyone else, the church no longer lives in such a way as knowing the time. I think when Paul wrote those words, he was being a little too hopeful about us, a little too positive about us. I think we have worked so hard to make this world so comfortable, enjoyable, entertaining, that we have completely forgotten the times in which we live. I think that we've become so involved in our own times that we've forgotten the Lord's time. And so we need to hear this as an admonition when he says, remembering the time. We need to put our time down. And we need to remember the times in which we live, the responsibilities that we have, and be found faithful in the times that you and I live. You know, it's interesting. You can kind of watch this. When a country's prosperity grows, its Christians seem to lose focus on the second coming of Christ. And, and when difficult times or times of sufferings come, our focus seems to sharpen. We, we think about it more. We talk about it more. We live in light of it more. The more the times grow hard, the more we remember the time of the return of Christ. You know, for Peter, here I go again, taking you places, but go with me to 1 Peter real quickly, and I'll come right back to Romans, because this defined everything for Peter, the return of Christ. I mean, nothing that he thought was very far from that thought. Notice with me verse 3 of 1 Peter. Now watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again, notice, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Notice, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the when. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like Peter can't go anywhere unless he's going to come back to that thought. Miss Burma kids me sometimes and says, it's not going to be long before you carry us back to the point of creation. And it's probably not. But for Peter, he's probably not going to finish a thought or a sentence from the pulpit until he's turned your hearts back to the time when Jesus comes again. Because for him, that was everything. And because of that, it defined everything as to how he lived his life. 
And so that's what he constantly communicated to the church. He's coming again. He's coming again. Therefore, live. Therefore, do this, Paul will say in Romans 13 and 11. Therefore, proclaim. Be faithful in your time because you know what time's coming. And it's coming soon. Go back to Romans 13. Now, you also know that it's not going to be a great day for everybody. In fact, for some people, that's going to be the worst time in the history of time. That's going to be the worst time in all eternity when Christ turns and you're found to be separated from Christ because you simply never trusted Christ. Now, there's all kinds of prophets, and I can give you a great many notes if you want to look at it later. Let me read just a few. Isaiah describes this as the day of the Lord. He says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Ezekiel says, For the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Amos says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? How about that? For those of you who are playing a game, who are just religious externally and haven't been converted of heart, Amos says, Why are you talking about the day of the Lord? (laughs) You think that's going to be a good day for you? That's going to be a horrifying day for you. I don't even know why you'd think about that day, let alone talk about that day. Obadiah says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done it, it will be done. Your dealings will be returned on your own head. If you're taking notes, jot down 2 Peter chapter 3. That's all that that's about. It's a terrible day. It's a horrible day for the majority. But for some, for the few, there'll never be another day like it. I mean, what we've been waiting on will be realized and we will see His face. And what a glorious day. What an absolutely glorious day that will be. If you'll notice back in Romans 13, the second part of verse 11, Paul's got the same perspective as the Old Testament guys. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, that's a logical statement. Time has passed since we believed, which means that automatically makes us closer to the second return of Christ. But that's how Old Testament and New Testament faithful followers had this perspective about salvation that we've completely lost. What what tense do we use? Oh, I've been saved. We, We constantly live in past tense. I've done that. I made things right with the Lord, past tense. I've taken care of that, past tense. Oh yeah, I've been saved. Now you can find places in Scripture where it is communicated in the aorist or in the past past tense in that sense. You can find places in Scripture where we are being saved in a constant present tense perspective. But you also find this many, many times where it's cast in a future perspective and it's all brought us together as the church and it says, yeah, we're looking forward to our salvation. What a day that will be. 
And that's Paul's perspective here. You know the time. We're awaiting salvation. We're awaiting deliverance. We're awaiting that moment where, listen, the penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is gone. And the presence of sin is gone. And death is no more. How's that for a day? How's that for a day when we'll die no more? When death won't even enter our mind? How's that for a day when a wicked thought will never cross your mind, where all the words roll out of your mouth are absolutely faithful and true and pleasing to the Lord? How about that day? Of course we should view that day as salvation. There's so much more I want to be saved from, namely myself. And so Paul says, hey, understand the times. Salvation lies just ahead, right? Now, we just entered a place, and let me pause where the arguments begin. In fact, I don't even know if some of you noticed, I've already crossed the line. If we left comments on, on Facebook, there's probably be a few things already popping up. Because some people are absolutely committed to their doctrines, their theologies, their systematized of, of everything. And I've already confused the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord is judgment. And there is a great argument about that. And one day, if the Lord is faithful, I mean, not if the Lord is faithful, forgive me, Lord. If the Lord gives me opportunity and a brain to do it, we will walk through such things as that. In fact, some of us were talking about it just this past Wednesday night. Johnny talks about it often. I think Travis is walking through it right now. And for many, those days are separated by seven years. Many hold to that. Church will get raptured. Seven years of tribulation. Then the day of the Lord will come. But you need to know not everybody is there. In fact, very faithful men are not there. When I was in Africa on a mission trip, I probably told you before, he says, when are we going out of here? The black pastor over there. I said, oh, I'm pre-trib. And he immediately laughed and he says, all you Americans are. You think you're going to get out of everything. And so there's this arguing going back and forth about we're going before the trib, we're going in the middle of the trib, we're going after the trib. But you need to understand, and I would, if I had time, I would show you, and I will perhaps even tonight, that for Peter, those two days are as one as he communicates them. In fact, he uses the day of the Lord coming as the very reason he says, therefore, be obedient, be like Christ. So if he's going to base it on the day of the Lord, I have a hard time reflecting, well, I won't even be here. That has nothing to do with me. Okay. Much of Scripture bases our obedience on the day of the Lord, but you feel like we won't even be here. Okay. But here's my point. There's so many people that get wrapped up so much in all that stuff, they forget the essential truths of that stuff. Now, it's good to pursue and understand those things. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And, and, and Lord willing, we will one day. But you need to understand, you're never going to understand everything. 
but there are some things that you desperately need to lay hold of even today. And I'll very quickly go through those things for you. For this very first thing, you need to be absolutely certain Jesus is coming again. Now, I don't care if you're pre, mid, post. I don't care if you're literal thousand or figurative thousand. You better understand that Jesus is coming again. In fact, I could point you to several different passages. Just on the night before he went to Calvary, he said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I could have taken you on in Acts chapter 1, just down in verse 11, where Jesus ascended and there were two angels standing there and they asked the followers of Christ, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you just watched Him go. I don't care where you are, who you are, you better understand that our Lord is coming again. And the second thing you need to understand is nobody knows when. That's another problem I have with trying to systematize and box and arrange every single thought. What's the end goal there? Because it's without question that the Lord Himself says in Matthew 24, but of that day and of that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So we have to live in light of understanding our times and understanding we don't know when the next time will come. Third thing is, the Lord is coming soon. You know, if you've studied Revelations, you should notice this truth in verse 1 and in the last chapter near the end, the very same phrase is repeated. And this is what it says, the things which must soon take place place. John says in the very first verse, I'm writing down the things that must soon take place. And when you get to the very last chapter of Revelations, John repeats this and he says, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So when John wrote the last book, that was his perspective. All this stuff that I just wrote down, it's going to happen soon. So you need to understand Christ is coming again. You need to understand you don't know when, but you do know this reality. We live expectantly because the Bible communicates it as coming soon. Notice in Romans 13, if you're still there, this is what Paul's thought is. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe the night is almost gone, the day is near. In other words, there's more than one phrase there that helps us understand. Y'all, it's, it's almost time. It's absolutely almost time for this thing. And he's about to go into, your life ought to change because of this tremendous sense of urgency. Now, I told you we've lost sense of time as a church. Let me give you another reality. We've lost sense of urgency. We absolutely lost sense of urgency to pray. We've absolutely lost our sense of urgency to proclaim. And we've absolutely lost our sense of urgency for holiness. Because we no longer believe that He's coming again and He's coming soon. Because if we believe that, 
you would behave differently next week and you would open your mouth every opportunity next week to tell somebody about the Lord if you really believe that. Speaking about urgency, my son's got a tremendous heightened sense of urgency right now. Starting in the morning. Got four days and five finals. The kid is studying like he's never studied in his life. He knows it's coming. He's got ground to make up. Because he didn't live with a sense of urgency in those first few weeks that the semester got started. He kind of lived like I find my spiritual life sometimes just kind of complacent. Just kind of forgetting what looms in a few weeks. But now the week is here. Hey, sleep, don't need it. Food, don't have time. Frustrated that I've got to pause and go to the restroom. Because he has such a heightened sense of urgency about what he knows is about to take place. And if you've ever preached up here from the pulpit, you know what Saturday's like. My ideal week is I walk into Monday and I'm already rolling on this thing. And there might be one day that I don't have the opportunity in which I'm studying through this thing. It doesn't matter though that if I miss every day like happens sometimes and Saturday comes up, it doesn't matter how the, pre the week's been previously because when Saturday gets here, there's a tremendous sense of urgency. So much so that when my phone rings, you better hope that I feel like answering it because I just might not. Sleep doesn't come well. Sunday morning comes extremely early and I'm up here working diligently because 11.15 is coming. We've got to change how we think about the return of Christ. We need to change our perspective about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've given you three. Let me, let me give you one, one more. You better be ready. Christ is coming. You haven't a clue when, and neither do I, and neither does anyone else on the planet. It is soon. But the whole purpose in eschatology comes to this conclusion. You better be ready. Now, I take you to Romans 13, and I can walk through the rest of it very quickly. Because in 11, Paul makes this illustration. You, you better wake up. You better wake up. And I think the reason that we're not urgent about this, and I think the reason that we've lost out of time, is because we're asleep. We're absolutely asleep on just about everything. We've become so wrapped up in our own desires, and our own passions, and our own hobbies, that we've fallen asleep concerning the things of God. And not only that, we live in a world that sings to us sweetly, drawing us away from God, and so it lulls us to sleep as well. And so Paul wants to hammer down on just a few points so we can remember, you better wake up and change how you live. We're really getting close to the day. And if you'll notice with me in, in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, well, let me start in the first verse, verse part of verse 12, and I'll read all of it. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, here's my conclusion. This is what you need to pay attention to. Let us lay aside, literally put off like a, car, like a garment. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on like a garment the armor of life. 
He says, you better take this off because you don't have any business wearing this right now. This is how you used to live. This has no place in your life. It's time to take this off and it's time to just lay that thing aside and it's time to put on a new coat. And he's about to come down that in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to wake up and put your clothes on. Because you're asleep and you're not prepared and you're wearing the wrong thing. You better wake up. You better get dressed. If I was the Lord over in the book of Matthew 24 or 25, He'd say, you virgins better trim your lamp. You better make sure you got oil because He's coming soon. Now notice the three things He turns to and, and we'll be finished. First thing He says in the second, or, or in verse, um, verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in, and then He uses three phrases. The first phrase is carousing and drunkenness. Now, some of you have probably got an, an illustration. In fact, probably many of you have an illustration of some sort of party, usually around work, office party or something like that, where alcohol was served. And when alcohol was served, people helped themselves and they helped themselves to the point where they lost self-control and they wound up acting like a fool, saying things they shouldn't have said, doing things they shouldn't have done, things they don't want to remember, things they might not even remember because they totally lost self-control. And Paul's like, you better wake up and get dressed because that doesn't need to be a part of your life right now. You need self-control to live in the times in which you live. I think one of the translations actually uh, translates the word carousing as drinking party. But don't be so narrow in your thought. Because both of those words press us to the point of understanding. You're talking about losing self-control. and That's exactly what I'm talking about. Does it include carousing and drunkenness? Of course it does. But it also includes a whole laundry list of things where it causes us to lose self-control. And he says, don't even go there. There's no time for that. That stuff's over. Look at the second thing he brings us to. Sexual promiscuity and sensuality. He said, man, it's, it's time to lay that stuff down. In fact, the word sexual promiscuity can be translated two different ways. It can be translated bed, and it can be translated sexual intercourse. You get the picture. It's not time for that. It's way past time for that. You better lay that stuff aside. You've got no business. You need to understand the times in which you live. You need to understand the times in which you live. You need to understand what's about to take place. And you need to lay aside all sexually immoral practices. It's not time for that. It's time to be holy. It's time to be the people of God. And I would be under the impression that what I just said applies to the most of us. Lest we go through your life with a fine tooth comb. It's not time. It's time to live different. It's time to be different. Yeah. 
It's time for us to understand the times in which we live. And lastly, and you're like, what is this even doing on the list? Strife and jealousy. You put that with sexual immorality and sensuality. Paul's like, yeah, absolutely that goes on the list. It's time for you to stop holding on to your feelings. It's time for you to stop living like somebody offended you. It's time for you to stop causing strife and living in strife. It's time for you to stop your jealousy and your division. All that needs to be put off. All that needs to be set aside. And we need to walk in unity and love. Christ is coming. He's almost here. We live in times that none of the believers before us ever had the opportunity to live. I would argue we live in the best times. Because He's almost here. But my fear, the truth, it's just the worst of times for the majority because they continue in their sin. They continue in rebellion. They continue in unrepentance. They continue in a lack of faith. And there's never been a worse time for you because Christ is coming again. It's the worst time of your life and you may be having fun. And you may be kicking back and enjoying everything around you and you don't have a clue of the day of the Lord and the danger in which you live. Because if you did and you were here this morning, you would be laying under that pew. If you did this morning, you would knock me down in repentance and faith trying to trust Christ. We've gone asleep. There is absolutely no question about it. And each and every one of us need to wake up and be found faithful, be found like Simeon. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting and I'm being faithful with what I have and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And when I see him, what joy will fill my heart. Paul sums up this and really he sums up the whole chapter in verse 14. But... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That word provision is thoughtful planning. My last thought. Thoughtful planning. You know what you do before you sin? Make a plan. You figure out how you're going to do it. The desire wells up in your heart. Thoughts in your mind, know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. But the desire seems so strong, and so you start planning. Paul's like, don't, it's not time for that. Don't do that. Don't you dare do that. Absolutely make no provision. Give no thought. Do not plan. Put it away in regard to the lusts of the flesh don't you dare feed that. Don't you dare go to the refrigerator. Stay out of the kitchen. Don't make any plans for it. Be done with it. Rather instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be found faithful in that day.